episode of Developer Mental Health with Jason Charns and Andrew Mason. I have a party horn app that I use as a good choices horn for my kids. And I let them fire it anytime they make a good choice. That's amazing. I love it. It's wholesome. It is wholesome. Yeah, it's just us again. Chris is still finishing up vacay, living the dream. I mean, maybe not though. I mean, I saw a picture the other day. Let me tell you. Homie is burnt. Real burnt. I'm talking like lobster meme burnt. It spelled Disney World in his one tweet in two weeks. I, I couldn't tell if that was a joke or not. I couldn't either. I had this perfect response, but I was like, what if I'm missing what, out? Yeah. What, what if it's a joke and I'm like, ha ha, der, der, der. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think it was a joke, but now I'm questioning it. Now, now I'm glad I didn't make a joke. Oh. I was going to say a whole new world. Oh, <laughs> clap, 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 clap. I was proud of it, but oh I restrained. That's, <laughs> that's like my type of humor is just like really dumb. Right. And like that is like peak comedy for me. I love well, it. Well, I'm glad I got some value out of that thought. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm so happy now. So last week we didn't have Chris again and we talked about inertia and we also, which is why I, I made that joke in the beginning. We talked a little bit about some mental health stuff and kind of some stuff, but it sounds like you've been doing more inertia. A little bit. So I started messing with forms and mm-hmm. love forms. Yeah. I got stuck in uh, CSRF hell. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Hate that. <laughs> so it would be awesome. It actually air quotes mostly just work if Rails called it excess RF token. That's what Axios, which is what inertia uses under the hood. Mm-hmm. It'll actually look for an excess RF cookie and send it as a header X dash excess RF dash token or whatever. And so what I had to do was set that cookie and just set it to the CSRF token in an after action in every application like controller instance. I guess we should clarify that Axios is a promise-based HTTP client for Node and JavaScript. Yes, yes, so it's very like, important. I guess it would be like the equivalent of using like HTTP party versus what's built into Ruby. Because I think there is something you can do like promise-based stuff the with... Fetch API... Right, with the Fetch API. So you don't need to use Axios. But using Axios gives you all these nice helper functions, basically. Which, that's kind of how I look at it, which is kind of how HTT party is. Yeah. And Inertia actually wraps Axios. So you don't actually have to interact with it directly. That's nice. Unless you're me. Ah. So, yeah. Ooh. The Rails side wasn't bad, though. So you just like, you set an after action. So you just set the cookie. Mm-hmm. After every request. And then you have to configure Axios. And I just do this in my pack file to rename the token header it sends to be XSRF, which is what Rails expects. But once I got that going, it was working good. Shout out to the Inertia Discord because the Rails channel is nice. not very active. So I just scrolled up and then I found somebody had posted that. But once I got that going, it was awesome because in inertia side, 
they have this use form hook. So this is React specific. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a bunch of different things. Like when you submit the form, it has a processing variable. So you can like disable a button. Right. Okay, so that's nice. That's basically, you know, data disable with. Right. And then it keeps track of the state. So if somebody likes typing in a field, it'll automatically keep track of that. So all you have to do is literally call post and then the URL you want to post it to, and it'll take care of serializing everything and sending it. So that's nice. nice. So then the next question is validation. Oh, yeah. Whether or not you want to do client or server, both. I have very strong feelings about the both situation, right? Because I feel like if you're going to do something, you have to have validations on the back end. But if you're going to have the separation between your front end and your back end, then it makes sense to have these client side validations as well. They're just super annoying to set up and work with. And they're just in general, just a pain. Yeah, I agree. And so inertia, you could punt all this to the server and it kind of still feels like it's client side if it's fast enough. So what I did was actually just got this from the docs. You go ahead and like each, there's like an error bag. So there's this errors variable that you get out of this hook. So like beneath a name field, you could be like, if errors.name, you know, spit out the error, kind of like you would do in a Rails template. Right. And then all you have to do is when you submit the form, if it fails, you redirect back to the new page. Mm-hmm. And then you say, kind of like you're passing props, you say inertia errors, and you can just be like model.errors. And then it will just take that and spit them back out. That's pretty slick. Not going to lie. It's cool. There's some like edge cases I haven't figured out. If you have multiple validations that fail, like you're, that's going to be an array and it's just going to push it together. So you'll probably have to do a little bit of like client side magic to like massage right. that out. Mapping them to the right input and such based on ID or some ARIA value or you're just a data value. Well, so you actually don't have to do that. I have this model called project and it has a name. Mm-hmm. And so I have a name. The input is name and that param maps to like what I expect in Rails. And so I have errors.name as like the thing I'm checking for on that field. Right. So if the project fails validation because of the name project.errors is going to be that active record like errors instance. And it's going to automatically map. So I don't actually have to do the mapping. But the thing is, I could have multiple validations in that key of errors. So like name wasn't present and didn't meet like the minimum length requirements. So what inertia does is like just, well, what JavaScript probably does is just take that array and just join it. Mm -hmm. But then you're probably going to want to put like an and or a call. Right. uh, Well, you could, can you not change it like on the Rails side, just call two sentence on it? You'd probably have to map through all the errors and do that. Well, I think you could just do errors dot two sentence. And it'll just make a... I can actually verify live coding. I just recently did this and I'm pretty sure two sentences is the bomb. Yeah. Okay. You do object.errors.fullmessages.twosentence. And, and that what does will that do, give you? That would give you, I think it would be like, I, I don't know. <laughs> does it give you an know. array or? No, no, it gives you a object. string. Oh, uh, see. So an object. Yeah. So you'd still need to like. Right. If you're going to put mean, them in the right place. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I've, when you said that you may want to make it an and, add and onto it, that made me think that you were displaying something at the top. So that's why I was like, oh, gotcha. errors.fullmessages.twosentence would give you exactly that message. Add in, I don't know if this would be even helpful or not, but maybe like pass back another object 
that's, you know, like dot errors or valid name question mark and then valid blah, blah, blah. And then if it maybe you could map based on that. I don't know. Also, I was saying I would map Rails side. So what I would do is just map over the errors as long as there is a hash of errors and each key is corresponding to the inertia input, it's going to know how to map that. Okay, what okay. I was thinking about is if I have two validations that fail for the same field. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm talking field. about. Okay. Yeah. I, okay, okay. Well, then again, I think you could, yeah, you would have to map through and do the same thing. You would just call two sentences on it. But that could even back be like... One, one string with both errors in it. Yeah. And so that's even something like if that's a pattern I do a lot, I could just make a helper method on the application controller or something like that and just be like errors to inertia and then Yeah, that's a that's a quality concern right there. Okay. Well, I honestly think like now that I'm thinking about this, like if I'm submitting a form, a JavaScript form, not that this is right or kosher or anything, but I feel like it's not common practice to send back all the errors. I feel like if I, I screw up the name field and it's like too short, then I fix it and then I tap to the next one and then it validates again and just sends up the next error. Not that I think that's good. I think what you're I mean, doing is better, but that is also an option, you know? Yeah. Just grab the first error and always, and then because when it goes back to validate, if it has another first error, it'll just display that until it's an empty object. Yeah, that would work too. It would yeah. be shitty, but. <laughs> I feel like that's what people typically do. Am I wrong? Maybe I'm tripping, but I don't feel like it's common practice to get like an actual good error message back. I really have to pay more attention. I feel like now that you say that, I see that pattern a lot, but I still also, either it's really ingrained in me or I feel like I still see the pattern of submit a form and then get all the errors. But Right. You know, there was a little bit of struggle to get there, but like the end result is actually really nice. And now that I understand it, it's good. And the other thing I I was showing Andrea Inertia, I showed like four people this week. I got really excited. She asked about how you're going to handle Flash. And so, right, fantastic question. I'm using a layout component. And Mm -hmm. so we'd probably have some kind of, you know, notifications div that's like permanent in there. So I went to Tailwind UI for this copied their notification stuff, made a notification component. And then uh, basically inertia, the Rails gym gives you this method called inertia share. It's a class method. So in application controller, I'm always sharing the flash. You know, it could be empty, but then in that layout, I can pull the flash out. And if it's present, render a toast or a notification. And if it's not, it doesn't. And then since it's using a Tailwind UI React components, all the JavaScript for closing it, animations and stuff is there. Right. It's awesome. I'm just kind of curious. You could just set like meta values. Like this is something Basecamp did, I think, when we were kind of like checking over how they were, how they made hay. They were setting values as meta attributes in the head of the document. So if meta value, a name, uh, I don't know, flash has content, then they would render that and then when the and the, the the flash wouldn't re-render right when the page reloads the server wouldn't put that back right so that would be a, another way i would solve that i think or or That's just data attributes somewhere yeah so i don't know how 
that would work with the inertia setup because it just has the one application layout that it like mm-hmm. is the entry point to the inertia app. And then it doesn't right. like reload pages. Oh, I see. It's I all see. like, I gotcha, gotcha. It navigates through components from that point. Okay. So, then never mind. Yeah. That's actually a really cool idea, though. I haven't thought about that for our other type of like flash stuff we've done, like a Podia. We actually have a, what's the word I'm looking for? Mutation observer. Mm-hmm. And we have some functionality wired up about like putting alerts in dynamically. And we even have it working with like reflex and cable ready and stuff. Uh, it's really cool. So I'm going to munch this. So I'm going to leave a link to where I heard about this in the show notes. It was on the Shop Talk show on episode 471. And Dave Rupert basically, or he, he mentioned the fact that a mutation observer can lead to a memory leak. And I was like, oh, interesting. Because I feel like a lot of the stimulus packages that kind of started getting released from like the stimulus reflex kind of like family of people or a bunch of them were mutation observer based. And I think we kind of all went through a little mutation observer phase. But you specifically have to stop observing elements when you use a mutation observer. And if it don't, it will create a memory leak. And oh. I didn't know that. So I, you'll have to do some independent research on your own, dear listener. But if you're using a bunch of mutation observers, you might want to look it up how that could create a mem- an opportunity for a memory leak if you're not specifically disconnecting when you're ready to stop observing those elements. What if you want to observe the whole time somebody's on a page? I don't know how Mutation Observer works, but if the event starts and I change pages, isn't it possible that that continues even though I've changed pages? I don't know. See, I'll In like a background thread? I was under the impression that it was like a per page thing, but... That's interesting. Another is use mutations are per node to be observed and never use subtree. Yeah, because you could inspect a whole subtree. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, some work for you to do. And especially if you're doing multiple, like batch. Yeah, I'm looking at a an issue from the working group. Batch mutation observer callbacks make it possibly difficult to reduce changes. Dom diffing and oh God, there's a lot of JavaScript. All right, I quit. There's something there that you, if you're using much mutation observers, you should go research this. That's all I'll say. I can't speak to it as well as I'd like to. And I can't, I didn't write down any notes when I was listening to that episode, but that stuck out of my mind as, oh crap, that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Link to that. Yes, I will. I, I did decide to bite the bullet and keep going with inertia on an app. So. Part of that was, once again, like going through, I, I want to use the Tailwind UI and all that. And right. Webpacker 5 has... Uh, I, I already know, but go ahead. You know, yeah, explain it. I know what it is. Yeah. You know where I'm going. So it's locked to a post-CSS 7. And yep. so you can use a backwards compatible... Tailwind build, but that also prevents you from using Tailwind's just-in-time compiler. Yes. So if you're unfamiliar with that, it's still an experimental thing, but essentially, instead of compiling all of Tailwind along with Webpack, it will listen for changes, and you write out some Tailwind, maybe in an HTML class somewhere, because that's how you write Tailwind. And then it's going to go basically generate all those styles on the fly. And so instead of shipping with the full Tailwind CSS library, you basically only have what you need. It's like a 
it's instead of trying to purge after the fact, it's the opposite effect where it's just building just what you need as you go. I mean, it's not too dissimilar from just in time compiling in any way. And the reason they had to add that, I mean, which makes a lot of sense is because, and I can't remember which update it was specifically. I think it might've been two or maybe it was 1.9, but one of them really jacked up the size of the file to the point that the amount of time it took you to compile via Webpack, the Tailwind CSS, it was no longer an acceptable amount of time to wait. And the fix was that you... Because basically, by default in Tailwind, when you generate a config, it's almost... I think there's a flag. It's like dash dash full, maybe, or something like that. You'll have to look at the docs because I, I wouldn't encourage this, so I'm not interested enough to share what the actual command is. But it will dump the entire Tailwind config file for you. And that is basically what is getting... That's the default, what is in your Tailwind config by default. But you can go in and modify the config so that it only is including you know, like the colors that you're using. If you're including all the colors, it's like this massive amount of colors. If you're using dark mode, it, it multiplies that number. And then, you know, breakpoints and hover and variance and all this stuff. So I think the colors was, I think I know that was one of the really big ones. So they, they tried to do some stuff to like bring that time by including more color variants, but not enabling them by default. But it got to the point where it was unacceptable. It was just too long. If you're using the default, and as I think we all know, like the majority of us use the defaults, right. that's a pretty common pattern, then it was just unacceptable to like use. Or it was just too long. It was, it was ridiculous. So they had to add this just-in-time compilation thing, which unlocked a bunch of really cool use cases and stuff. But it also, instead of generating that massive config file, it scans your project and only creates the classes that it needs to create that it can find. Otherwise, it doesn't do it. But what this allows you to do is build dynamic classes. So instead of if I want a custom Tailwind color, I have to put in my config, like under theme extend, you know, colors dot, I don't know, primary. And then I would go use that throughout my project. Now, and this works especially well in a component architecture, you can create dynamic classes. So instead of color or text blue 500, you could do text dash and then square brackets and then the actual, you could do a CSS variable, you could do just a hex value, RGB, whatever. But the point is that you can dynamically create those classes like in line now. And the way you can do that is because now it scans your whole project and builds the, the classes kind of at compilation. Yeah, it's awesome. It also, along with the other stuff it unlocks, like all the variants are there. Like I used to have a problem where... right. I would want to do something on disabled, change the opacity on some kind of element. It wasn't supported yet. Right. Uh, or it's like, you're trying, why is this not working? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's cool because it works for colors. It works for sizes. So if you want to set the width of something to like a certain pixel, you mm -hmm. can just W square bracket it. It's also got where you can do important modifiers now mm -hmm. in line, just in the class and, name. Yeah. You they unlock like all of those special types of modifiers, like before, after, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Like selection. I like that one because I think it's cool when you select like text on my website. It's like the theme color, dumb stuff like that. Yeah, it's awesome. So, yeah. So, Webpacker, uh, hmm. I wanted to use this and Webpack, Webpacker 5 locked to post CSS 7. So, you can't use just in time. You have to be on the latest version of Tailwind using the post CSS 8 build. 
So what I did is I started a fresh Rails app and I didn't do Webpack install stuff. Like I did skip Webpack install, committed, then ran, I added the gym in. I think it's like beta seven right now or something like that for version six. Sounds right. I bundled installed that. I had to run like yarn install the latest Webpacker version, like especially. Right. So Webpacker 6 seems... Oh, the other thing I did, I ran Webpack install after that to get all the right configs and everything. So then I committed that. But Webpacker 6 seems like less in your face, like verbose is Webpacker 5. Does that make sense? I, Am I wrong about that? That's maybe another way. Let me know if this is kind of what you mean. It's not configured for you. Maybe. So like, for example... It doesn't have any thing- of the parts. It's just, it's the setup, but none of the parts. You have to... It's like going to Ikea, right? You get like the box, but then you have to go home and actually figure out, screw all the pieces in. That I was, you need. I was surprised that the Webpack install React command wasn't there. And then yes, I, they took all of those out. I looked at the docs. All you have to do is install two yarn packages and the React stuff just works. Yep. So that's what I mean about it feels like less overwhelming because when I would run Webpacker install React before, it would modify the Webpacker config and change. Uh, they took away a lot of the magic because the magic is what made it work for most people. Or maybe I don't even want to say most people. The magic is what made it work like out of the box for an average use case. And now that that's not in there anymore, it's not magical, which means you can, it's really easy to understand once you understand how the things that you're trying to do work. It's really easy to do it now and use the versions that you want to use. And like when you try to install React, it doesn't do all this funky stuff that you don't understand and use versions that you don't want. It actually feels more magical to me because it doesn't do all that. I'm really? less, I don't know, maybe I'm missing out on some of the features, but like installing two yarn packages and then just using React felt really good because my config file was still, for lack of a better term, pure, right? The Webpacker file hadn't changed. So I was like, I was really intimidated when it would make those changes because you don't know what it's doing. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I'm misinterpreting it. Maybe I'm actually shooting myself in the foot right now, but. No, it's like when I say it's not magical anymore, it's like, but you have to go in and install React versus running that React command. Right. 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 So, and it sets up React the way, I don't know, an average, it thinks React should be installed, but it, it does it based on when that it was last updated. Right. And now you have to specifically, but that's the thing when you said, oh, I just had to add in these two yarn packages, but that's, you'd have to do it anyway. That's like the normal way you install React, right? You have like your React or your Preact or whatever, and then you have your loader or whatever bundler you're using, you use that and you may have some special React stuff. And the only other stuff for React specifically is that you have to have a specific Babel configuration. Let's take a second to thank our sponsor, Honey Badger. Recording errors in production apps is a lot more than recording just the error itself. You need the context that goes along with it. That's why Honey Badger includes everything you need to know with each error. So Honey Badger records, of course, the error, the backtrace, the cookies, the session, and all that information. But they also include a bunch of other really useful things like which user saw the error, 
and how many times they have seen it. So if you have a user trying the same thing over 15 times, you know, hey, you should probably reach out to that customer and let them know, hey, we're working on it and we're going to have this fixed very shortly. The other thing that's really cool about Honey Badger is the breadcrumbs. They automatically record client-side and server-side breadcrumbs for you so you can see all of the steps that a user took before the error occurred. This is really, really useful, especially in integrations where you have maybe the user doing something on the client side that triggers some JavaScript that goes and asks for something from the server. And then that response comes back and then it triggers a JavaScript error. You have several things going on there and you can see all of those steps that were taken with the breadcrumbs and honey badger. It helps you reproduce it. You can also see the entire process that the user took, which you may not be able to guess sometimes. Users can do some strange things, and it's really nice to be able to see those breadcrumbs in Honey Badger. Plus, they support everything from Ruby to JavaScript, PHP, Elixir, Go, and even Crystal. So that means no matter what you're running, whether it's client-side or server-side, you can keep track of all of that in one place. Check them out at honeybadger.io and let them know that you heard about them on Remote Ruby. I'm pulling up the docs right now. Yeah. Uh, so React is supported and you just need to add relevant packages. So I added the Babel yeah. preset React, but I didn't configure it or anything. Does it just, does Babel just know? So open up your package.json and you have a Babel key in there. Yes. Yes. That's how it knows. You don't have to create a .babel rc or a babel.config.js or whatever. Or like the other way you would do it normally if you're using Webpack out of the box is that you would specify it in line when you install the Babel loader to do these transformations and then you would write the config in line. But the other way you can do it is inside of your package.json, which you can actually do that for a lot of things like prettier. You can do a lot of configuration directly inside of your package.json, which I have started to do now a lot more because it's freaking awesome. I like all the tools, but I don't like that I have to have all of the tools like configured in my like all those different files. So what you did is that you right now are pointing, I'm imagining, to a remote Babel configuration. Yeah, I just looked it up. So it's Webpacker. Okay, so this is why it feels more magical because I see all this Babel config stuff and that's what it used to add to like the Babel RC file, right? Right. Babel config. And that's what I was scared to touch. What it's doing now is that Babel key in package.json has a preset that's pointing to the node module, Rails, Webpacker, Babel right. preset, and it's calling this method module exist. And if it does, then it's configuring Babel preset React for me. That feels more like the Rails way of hiding the implementation from you. And right. that feels good. And I'm happy about this. I like this. Not only that, I think this is like a fantastic... I think this, this is going to be controversial because this is going to be a really hard change for a lot of people. But I think this change is amazing. The changes in this update are amazing. They're going to allow you to do so much more things. And so much of, I think, the pain that I've had with Webpacker is going to be gone. Because like you said, with that Babel, they dump a big Babel config because they're trying to dump a Babel config that works for you know as many of the Rails use cases as they possibly can. So you as a developer don't understand it. You just know you have this big Babel config. Now what you have is a preset that is remote. Now, if you want to change it, you have to create your own local Babel config. 
So it draws that line in the sand of like, I'm using Rails default versus I'm using my own custom thing. Once you stop using that remote URL and you create a BabelRC or BabelConfig.js or whatever, the Babel loader will go in and search for all of them. But once you have one of those in your project, now I know coming onto a project, if it's using Webpacker 6, that this team has a custom Babel config. So there may be something right. to go look at there. Versus now where I'm like, oh, it's a Babel config. Cool. I'm not going to look in there. Right. But now it's like a key, hey, this is custom. And yeah, it is much more of a Rails kind of default. Hey, we did it for you. We're hiding it from you. But you have the opportunity to kind of like eject from it. So I'm talking to you about Webpacker because I was telling you before we recorded, like when you search for Webpacker 6, it's all Andrew Mason blog posts. You have like a seven-part blog post series on this. Yes. So I have a couple of questions while we're here. Did they replace the packs with chunks tag to just be now JavaScript pack tag and it just does chunks automatically? I don't think so. If you go to the Webpacker docs, you know, it's on... I do uh, packs with chunk in my example. You do, it, you do in your example. And then when I was like messing with it today, I was looking through the docs. All the docs talk about now is using JavaScript pack tag and it will include the transpiled packs with chunks in your view. Okay, so that might be a change that occurred between the last time I updated this guide. Because I think That's I had last I updated six... It hasn't been updated to like the point is like beta seven. There's this massive amount of time between beta one Your post and beta has been seven. Out for a while. Like yeah, but I published the post in December of 2020. Yeah, we're looking at seven months here. So that's a change that I need to make because previously it wasn't doing that. But that's good that it does that. Um, I, I think so too. But I remember seeing like when Webpacker 6, I started reading about it even like around the time your blog post came out. I remember that was the thing that like it said to use was like this with chunks method, mm -hmm. which is a, which already exists in Webpacker 5. It's a uh, weird but name, but I get it. They make chunking is a like a thing in Webpack. So that's where that name comes from. It is a weird name. JavaScript packs with chunks tag. Blech. But yeah, it is very, it's like very descriptive of what it is, I guess. It's a JavaScript yeah. pack tag with chunks. It's cool though. I tell you what actually really tripped me up and just gonna be embarrassed. So like we're on the beta versions, right? Or the, yeah, I think it's betas right now. Yeah. And yeah. so I put in like whatever that horrible name you had for that symbol is. The spermy operator. Yeah, I put that in. Waka. Italy Waka. I put that in with 600 pre two or whatever. And, right. Or no, maybe I put beta seven and something happened and it took me, yeah, I put beta seven and it took me up to pre two, but that's what broke everything. Does pre come after beta? See, I didn't think so. I didn't think so either. And that's what I just assumed like, oh, I just don't understand this. So I had to actually just put an equal sign in as just lock it to this version. Right. I feel like I might have done the same thing. Hold on. If you didn't know this, more so speaking to other people, because I didn't know this, Ruby Gems has a guides tab and they specifically tell you like a lot of things, like how to name your gem, like the right way that they view to name your gem. And they also have, they're the ones that have the, <laughs> the documentation on the tiddly, tiddly walker thing. 
the change of life for the first stable minor release is the sum of all preceding pre-releases for that minor version. So it kind of sounds like it does come before pre. It sounds like pre is for a pre-release and beta is just a beta, right? So then okay. it, when I say it like that, it makes sense that pre-release would come after a beta. Okay, so I, I track with that. But if you go look at the Webpacker tags, pre-1 yeah. and pre-2 were December 2020. And I don't know if... But beta 7 was April 2021. It looks like someone made a mistake here. Actually, the pre's were dated before the betas in this. Right, that's what I'm saying. I think that's what actually screwed me up because I was using 6.0.0 pre-2, which is seven months old, but the JavaScript package was beta 7. And so I couldn't get any right. JavaScript to work. So I don't know. I wonder if maybe Ruby Gems, when I did that bundle... I think it sees the pre-2 as the latest. Like I'm looking at all versions of Webpacker on Ruby Gems, and it has pre-2 at the top. You know what it kind of looks like? It kind of looks like someone with a different style started making these releases. And I know you notice like some of these releases say like for 4.0, it goes 4.0 pre-pre-1, 4.0 pre-pre-2, 4.0 pre-1, 4.0 pre-3, 4.0 RC1, and then it goes RC1 through 8. But for this one, it went pre-1, pre-2, which kind of tracks with what it was previously doing. But then it starts after it does both of those, then it starts going through betas. So it almost kind of looks like someone with a different, maybe they decided something different or a different like pattern was implemented or something. It kind of that kind of looks like what happened. It and that makes maybe me it wasn't feel, supposed to be like that. It makes me feel better. I think I ran into that exact same thing though. Because I was like, I cannot get this to work. So right. anyway. Yeah, because in mine I specifically put the I I, I spelled the whole thing out. Gotcha. Once I got that, that's when things started clicking. And I'm excited to try and build something using Tailwind UI with just-in-time inertia. Webpacker 6, like I feel very up-to-date. And I'm sure I'll be out-of-date like in a week. But right now it feels right. good. So it's kind of funny you bring this up. So last weekend, Emma Barnes tweeted at me. and She had a repo that I think, I guess had Rails 6... React and Webpacker and Tailwind, but I made this in 2018. So, and I when I looked at, it, I was like, oh, I remember following a tutorial when I built this. And I was like, so this is before I knew Rails. I built this before, either right as a junior, like just starting a job, or right before. But then she was having issues setting Webpacker with Tailwind, and we were kind of talking about it. And I was like, as we were kind of getting along, I was like, maybe you should just try because you're gonna have to use. Because I told her she had to use the post CSS seven thing, which doesn't make any sense for someone who doesn't know this crap like you and I, we're Tailwind nerds. Non Tailwind nerds would not know this, right? That there is this post CSS support version that you could use. It's not. It definitely. It's whatever. And right. then on top of that, all the Webpacker stuff, like you can't just install the new Tailwind because you need post CSS eight, and Webpacker is locked at post CSS seven. And that's why the new Webpacker no longer locks you at anything because you have to install all your own loaders and stuff. But at some point, I, you should just you should just install Webpacker six. Like honestly, I was like, I think it honestly will be faster for you to do that than and to figure that out than to do this. And she was like, All right, yeah, I hit this error. Cannot find module mini CSS extract plugin. And she's, like, This is too disruptive. I'm not doing this right now. 
which like I was like, I feel you on that. Yeah. I've been there so many times. But that's what I feel like this exact ex- thing that she just went through, which is why I'm bringing it up, is something that I think everyone's going to go through. They're going to install the latest thing. They're going to try to run their thing. They're going to get an error like mini CSS doesn't work or this or that. They're going to get all these errors and they're not going to understand how to fix them. And to clarify, the fix is that now Webpacker works on a loader system. The way that Webpack knows how to transpile and modify and convert and this and that, the files that you want it to, is that you specifically install a loader, a plugin for it to specifically do that. And then it has to be configured. And right now, if you were to open up the Webpacker NPM module, it's basically like a super mega config, Webpack config. But at the end of the day, it's just a Webpack config. And they do some stuff to like build like a mega one that will kind of work for every use case that they can think of, right? So right now, CSS, just without any specific loader, is not going to work. You have to install a loader to, so that Webpack can compile the CSS into your JavaScript pack. That's what mini CSS extract does. Then you have to do something for Babel. And if you're using type, like Babel is the Babel that we talked about earlier. And then there's maybe for TypeScript. And Tailwind needs post CSS to work. So you have to have a post CSS loader on top of the mini CSS extract loader. And then if you're using SAS, so if you're using SAS, Tailwind, and CSS, you have to have a, a loader for all three. So you would first parse the CSS, then parse the post CSS, then parse it as SAS. Don't ask me why it's in that order. It goes backwards. But regardless, no matter what you're doing, with images, it's the same thing with images. It's the same thing with JSON. It's the same thing with everything. Images, favicons, this and that, fonts, etc. You have to have a loader for every single one. And if you don't have a loader, you can't use that file because Webpack can't compile that file. And that's why you're going to get all these errors of like, Webpack CLI can't find module this or that. Or it can't do this, or it doesn't recognize this type of file. And the, like I said, the reason for that is because it has to have a loader for every single one. And before, Webpacker had all of the loaders all configured, like most general way it possibly could, baked inside of the gem. Now that is no longer true. And you have to install them all yourself manually. So throwing it all the way back to what you were saying when you were installing React, you have to have the Babel loader and you have to have React, right? So... In the beginning, the reason I wrote this blog post is because there was no documentation on how to do this. Now, I think there is. They've written down how you would do these things. But regardless, I think it's going to be a really frustrating upgrade cycle for a lot of people. If you don't understand Webpack at all, you're in a very disadvantageous position. Even though it's, it's frustrating, I would implore you just to read through, start reading through some of the Webpack docs. It's really not a bad read. I think they did a, their docs team is like, really good. But understand it. It'll tell you how to like everything that you can think of that you would need. It'll tell you in the docs. And now for Webpacker 6, the way Webpack says to do it is the way you do it in Webpacker 6. That was a long spiel. I'll be honest. I'm terrified to upgrade Webpacker 5 to Webpacker 6. That is why mm-hmm. this is the first time I've tried it. I've just put off trying like just in time with Tailwind and stuff. I want to do some stuff with that blog post. And, but I was like waiting for the official release to drop before I kind of like, you know, did like, here's like the final thing. But right. I, I have like several kind of steps in here. One of them is setting up your CSS loaders and then post CSS loaders, then your SAS loaders, and then how you work with images and how you work with SVGs. 
that Webpack inline SVG plugin that y'all all use is not going to work anymore. So just FYI, if you're using Webpack, Webpacker plugin inline SVG or something, whatever it is, that's not going to work anymore. But you can do it natively inside of the new Webpacker, which is just wrapping Webpack and it's not that bad. You just have to know that you have to do that, I think. So the pain is that now we've been kind of so abstracted, a lot of us from oh, I did Webpacker, blah, blah, blah. And now there's all these files. I don't know what any of them do. It's just they've done way too much and I don't care. It works. And now the problem is, is that you need to know what's in those. Now you kind of need your own. You need to know how you're using your assets so that you can correctly configure Webpack to work for you. That's where I think there are a lot of people are going to be really frustrated because they're not going to know what they're using. And especially when it comes to what if you're using post CSS, SAS, and CSS, you know, you have to have a loader for each of them. It's not abundantly clear. And, you know, how do I use Dart SAS instead? Well, which wasn't possible in Webpacker 5. Now with Webpacker 6, it is. You could use Dart SAS, which is way faster. That's an example, one of the superpowers that this update now gives, because now we're not all tied to a common config. Now there's no lock in. And like that thing that happened where Tailwind upgraded. And then we all wanted to use it, but we couldn't because Webpacker 6 had to have post-CSS 7. And everyone was stuck because Webpacker was locked in that version. Now there's no lock into anything. So now you should be able to have not only a lot less JavaScript packages and a lot less stuff, you should be able to have a lot less going on. And the also benefit is that now you kind of have to know what it's doing. Yeah. There's so many articles and blog posts about how to do it. It's just... It's, you just have to know that you have to do it. And I think the instinct for us as Rails developers is like, I hit upgrade, it works. And now you hit upgrade and it's completely broken. Yeah. It's going to take a little TLC, but I think it's worth it. Yeah. I guess that would be next Rails comp. That would be a good Rails comp topic, maybe. I imagine this will be the thing for a lot of people as well that kind of makes them think, okay, what if we don't use Webpack? Because I think right. now it's going to be in-your-face pain versus before where it was like, it's only painful when you have to change something or if you're going, like you have to do something custom. Now there's going to be in-your-face pain. And if your team is like obstinate and is not willing to like, you know, do the minimal amount of effort to learn the technology that your app is using, you bad person, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But if your team's not willing to do that, then now the space for what if we don't use Webpack is going, I think is going to kind of explode for Rails. Yeah. I'm kind of excited about that. I ebb and flow. I don't know. I just have to learn how to actually use something like React outside of Webpack. Right. But I just need to learn it. It's the same thing, right? You have to, however that thing load, knows how to load things. At the end of the day for React, you have to have the React package and you have to have Babel and that's it. And I yeah. mean, for Snowpack, like it's, I think they have a, they have a preset I think you can use. Now we're in this situation where I think Vite or Vite, whatever it is, Snowpack. Now there's space for like people to like make those work. Is Now there's going to be incentive to do that. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to chat about before we wrap up? Yeah. I have to make a really serious and bold statement that oh I like gosh. pineapple on my pizza. And if you don't like that or you're offended by that, I don't care. Okay. Yeah, I just needed to get that out of my system. I'm tired of people judging people for like a pineapple on their pizza. I'm sick of it. I do not judge because my wife likes pineapple on her pizza. So I'm well, not going to judge. My wife and I can share a pizza. 
That is true. That is true. So if we ever get well, pizza, we're train wrecking now. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go meditate or something. Think <laughs> <laughs> uh, happy thoughts. As this update continues to approach, people are gonna have more and more questions about it. And since I'm obviously now the canonical understander of okay. if my name comes up when you Google this, then I guess I will uh, figure out the answers to questions if people have them, and then we can talk about them on the show. Yeah, I mean, you're the now, expert. Now we're a webpacker podcast. <laughs> oh, God. Remote webpacker with Chris Oliver, Jason Charts, Andrew Mason. Yeah, we just end it. <laughs> <laughs> just cut. This concludes our broadcast day.